two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm one of your hosts, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined today with my other host, Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel Krauser. How's it, how's it? Yeah, well, you know, here we are, still in the endless, the endless the lockdown, the great pandemic with no end, the when when time and space become merged into one thing and everything blends into the next. Or at least if you like me and you're staying on in the same place for how many weeks has it been? Since the end of March for me, I think. A Brazilian. It's been a Brazilian yeah. week. Uh, at least you've gotten to travel around uh, a bit and see the eerie post-apocalyptic landscape. I have. Dude, I've got to say, in this area around, um, <clears throat> in sort of Melville, Richmond, uh, Yeovil, yesterday in Yeovil, uh, I, I, I went back uh, to pick something up at about midday, two o'clock in the afternoon, and the music was already blasting on my street. Which you is new. To, uh, to pick something up in Yeovil, did you? Yeah, I went to pick something very herbaceous up in in Yeovil, okay. and and there was so, and there was music blasting from two o'clock, and they and and the and the music carried on going uh, where I was staying next door until pretty late at night. So that is kind of another. Last week I was around Yeovil, Dunfermline, Hillbra. And I saw a lot of activity on the streets, but people were not partying, and now the party's back on. So this this uh, thing that I've made a few videos about, I saw Gigi Alcock, who's like uh, a, a pretty interesting guy to follow, uh, marketing genius who brought the world the Soweto Beach Party to to uh, get Captain Morgan going to people who'd never been to a beach, uh, and and so didn't have a sort of the, their marketing advisors were like. Why is it that this whole pirate-themed, uh, like, rum is not selling? Is it because he's white? Do we need to change the race of Captain Morgan to penetrate the South African market? He was like, nah, let's just throw a beach party. Turns out that worked. Um, and also got Parmalot slices in every Guinea and Quarter uh, from Kyle to... Who doesn't love Parmalot? Mozambique. Yeah. Anyway, so Gigi Alcock is a really smart marketing guy and, and has dropped that to become sort of a, a commentator and analyst. And he's done some surveys. And the headline of his piece was, the townships have already lifted the lockdown, uh, which just reaffirms the line that you guys have been hearing on Two Crickets for at least a month. This is not about locking people down. This is about locking money down. The money can't flow. Uh, if it can flow, it's only it's mostly illicit, you know, or there's a lot of pressure towards illicit flow. Uh, but people are moving around. Moving around town, having a party. Uh, so I think we're going to talk in a moment about uh, a project sort of both of us been put on by our leadership, um, <laughs> the Supreme the Emperor, himself, the Emperor himself of the IRR. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but I'm going to forget about this if I don't say it now. So I just wanted to want to talk about it. I don't know if you've ever heard of a dude called Bill Mitchell, right? He's an American who's famous for, especially on Twitter, but um, also on, he has, I think, a podcast or something uh, that gets some people to listen to it. He's famously the most pro-Trump person with a big following in America. And when I say pro-Trump, I mean, there is no deviation from the line. The man cannot do any fault in Bill Mitchell's eyes. Uh, I think his tag is at uh, Mitchell Lavelli. Or right. was pronounced. Yeah, it's, it's Machiavelli, but with Mitch, Mitch at the front. Uh-huh. Uh, 
and he has the most fantastic tweets. And I have to I have to read this one out because it just tickled me absolutely pink. Go. Some have called me a psychophant for unrelenting unrelenting support of the president. I am not. I believe Trump was sent by God to lead America through this most perilous moment in our history, blessed with a vision and second sight beyond his innate strategic brilliance. He is our voice. (laughs) (laughs) Now, (laughs) there's liking a politician. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then there's there's going to bed with a politician. Yeah. And then there's like another 50,000 steps. And then there's making that politician your god. But here's the best part. Here's the best part. Is that this is his tweet in defense of him not being a sycophant. Yes. (laughs) Guys, you got me wrong. I am not a sycophant. I am a worshipper. (laughs) Uh, I think incarnate being. The version of the, the version of the joke of that joke I saw on in the replies to it was, "No, no, guys, I'm not a sycophant. I'm an acolyte." Yeah, <laughs> I am the disciple. <laughs> we will we will go overseas uh, a little bit later in the show, assuming that we don't get caught in a thousand traps of tangents, which we normally do. Um, but while uh, while that percolates in your minds as, as preparation for the horror that is to come. <laughs> um, We, well, I just did an interview and Gabriel also sort of did an interview with a guy called Nick Hudson, uh, who is from a group that's called, they're calling themselves Panda, which is the Pandemic uh, Data and Analytics Group, I think. It's like an informal group of rogue actuaries, an economist, I think it's got, they say they've got a medical, some medical people in there too. Um, And basically they've come out with some stuff saying that, you know, a couple of things I think we sort of broadly agree with stuff like uh, that there's a very real human cost to lockdowns. They've argued that data is not supporting lockdowns. Um, and they've also said that the number of deaths in South Africa and the developing world is going to be much lower than expected. Um, it was quite a, a nice interview. So people, uh, yeah, yeah, go, just go ahead. Give, just to give some more background, like people will, uh, who've been following the South African story will have heard of these guys. Um, because a week or two weeks ago now already, I think a week ago, they released a, 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 a calculation. Two weeks ago, they released um, their model for uh, the economic consequences. And they found something like 32 million life years will be lost as a result of the economic depression. You just look at sort of the numbers of people that are expected to, be, to move down uh, and an income category and you look at the differences in life expectancy between people in one income category and another income category and then you sort of estimate how much shorter people will live as a result so they're not getting into the details of like you know we've noticed uh, people haven't been showing up for their vaccinations or we noticed that people haven't been showing up for their cancer treatments or we noticed that uh, voluntary procedures have been put off and this is the kind of rate at which uh uh, diseases go from manageable to unmanageable if you put off the voluntary procedures. They haven't been doing that kind of micro stuff. They've just been looking at general data from, for example, 2008 global financial crisis. What did that do to life expectancy? What do they think this is going to do to life expectancy? So 32 million life years. Now, we talked about this on the show because uh, right at the beginning, because one of the things, um, there's this sort of ethical 
uh, point that was uh, made pretty big by Peter Singer, who's one of the more famous uh, philosophers at Princeton University, uh, and he has long argued that what actuaries do is is life year calcu calculations, because uh, that really matters for if if, if uh, life insurance policy, um, and sort of said, well, there's an ethical wisdom there, and so we should consider the life of a 70 year old lost to be different in ethical proportions to the life of a two year old, because a two year old uh, has got a lot of life years ahead of them and a 70 year old much less. He goes even further. He he wants quality of life years as a kind of ethical basis. So if someone is severely disabled and pretty old, then they would have very few quality of life years expected. And if someone is very young and very healthy, then they'd have lots of quality of life years expected. Now, the, the pushback against that from a philosophical point of view is that we seem to have this very strong uh, impulse, both uh, in purely moral terms and in legal terms to treat the human lives as equally valuable and not to say that old people's lives are less valuable than young people's lives just because young people are expected to live for longer. Yeah. Um, this a, is this a practical We didn't get into that debate, but it's just, yeah. you know, something to note. There's also a very practical objection, which is that it's actually incredibly difficult to really uh, measure the life quality of a lot of different people. I mean, you can have someone who's... You know, obviously, if someone's like their 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 head is cleaved in half and they live in constant agony all the time, it's probably quite easy to tell that they're not having a great quality of life. Uh, but for a lot of older people, they may seem a bit sort of slow, doddery. Maybe their memory's a bit not so good. Uh, but they may have a richer life than someone who's perhaps healthier, younger, but has worse other conditions of their life. So I think it's yeah. on a practical level, it's very difficult to uh, count the utility. Uh, yeah. So, but so, 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 just to be clear, they weren't doing the full Peter Singer thing. They weren't counting quality of life years. They were just counting life years. Um, and and I and I think oh, I, I sort of it didn't come up, but I just want to note this this thing. They are in a sense comparing apples with apples. Uh, it's because what they're saying is, look, here's what you should expect. The economic damage that this is doing is uh, even according to those people who are promoting it, it's not going to really change the number of old people who die because it's about flattening the curve, not curb stomping the virus. We have no hope of curb stomping this virus. We can't even flatten the curve. Um, so all the old people that are going to die are going to die anyway. It's just that they're going to die over a distributed point in time. Um, but the consequence of, of, of making that happen through the lockdown is that uh, you're going to have a lot of young people today who're going to die earlier when they're old? They're more likely to die when they're sixty than when they're seventy. So it's sort of. So I think that's anyway. It's a really important uh, argument that they're putting out there, but there are maybe some problems. Yes, um, and I, I did sort of ask him about these problems, um, uh, and so did Gabriel as well uh, in, in Gabriel's discussion with him. But basically, some of the, some of the objections we raised are. Uh, in their analysis, they one of the central points of their analysis is that they predict this very short duration of the virus. Um, they say that for various reasons, um, the virus looks like it may have some sort of naturally low burnout point at which it doesn't really spread through a lot of the population. There's like they think that there's cross immunity with other coronaviruses, uh, or at least the potential for this, and so this. Or there's not a huge amount of the population who can get infected, and that the course of the disease will look something like this: will have this spike uh, in infections, and then it goes down pretty quickly, and then we're out of it. Yeah. So um, like, 
stays from a thousand cases to the peak, and then from there you drop out. So, so here's the thing. This is a thesis that's been put forward by Oxford University for quite a while, and um, I just want to give sort of a couple of points on how I've been thinking about it, and I've been reading a lot of academic journals and looking at a lot of data, um, but I'm a pretty like unsophisticated guy. I'm quite a layman. You know, I come, I come at this as a journalist, which means I'm an amateur and everything else. And my training <laughs> is philosophy, which is even more like makes you an amateur and everything else. <laughs> so there's this confusing thing, right? It's sort of confusing, a little bit confusing to everyone, which is that if you look at the data, uh, uh, let's say there are 100 people in the population. Uh, we know from everything we know about respiratory infectious diseases that are at all like the coronavirus, that you'd expect something like 60-70% of the population to have it before herd immunity is doing a real job at, 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 at crushing the, the virus. We've found that nowhere, right? Uh, so antibody tests, serology tests, where you go out into the population, randomly test people, see how many people have got the virus. You're looking at most 30% amongst like hospital workers. Uh, and in general populations, you're looking at most 15% in a place like New York State and 20%. I think, I think Stockholm is like at 17% or something like that. In, uh, yeah. Famously unlocked out Sweden. So... Even the, even still, so people who think just herd immunity is like flattening the curve uh, are not getting supported by the serology. Then Oxford comes out and says that, well, here's the thing. Some people get the virus. They develop the antibodies. The antibodies beat the virus. As I've said a couple of times, uh, we know two antibodies, which when they work together, are completely deadly to this virus. They're super successful. They block the spike protein so that it can't unlock the door to your cells. Um, we test for these antibodies. We find these antibodies in some people. But some people kind of are exposed to the virus, and then they beat it without even generating the antibodies. So how do they do that? Well, maybe they just really, they've got mucus in their lungs, and that, you know, stops it from getting inside. Maybe there's something about how their tonsils work. Maybe there's something about what kinds of, uh, anti, uh, re, uh, what kinds of immuno responses they have uh, uh, to other coronaviruses. So they, they produce different antibodies to the ones that work best and that we're tracing, the same ones that they produce uh, to beat another kind of common cold. Coronaviruses cause common colds. Uh, and that does the job. So when you test them for the antibodies for this coronavirus, you don't find that they've beaten it with the like very best sniper equipment, but you find that their shotguns have kind of managed to do the same thing. But we're not testing for that. So they say, you know, if you're only finding 15, 20% of the population has got the antibodies, you're missing out on that other percentage of the population that is effectively immune, that is either beating off the virus so quickly that it, they never become contagious, or they're a little bit contagious, but not really and in any event are on producing the right antibodies. So the thing is, that seems very plausible to me to a degree. Like if in a year's time, we figure out that 20% of the population has that ability and that it pushes up to 30% or 40% in third world countries where you don't have as much hygiene because where you don't have as much hygiene, 
you have stronger immune systems because the more people are licking dirt effectively, the more they are interacting with a wide variety of viruses and the more uh, experience their body has at beating that wide variety of viruses. So it's one of the I reasons be that you should expose more children to uh, at least some germs when they're growing up so that yeah. they do not get sick later. Yeah. So, but it seems, it would seem strange to me, given what we know right now, not impossible, but it would seem strange to me, given what we know right now, if 70% of the population is immune to the coronavirus. Now, this is very hard to test because to test for natural immunity, you have to get a random sample of a thousand people and say, look, guys, here's what we're going to do. There's this virus. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have an antiretroviral, antiviral. We've got no cure. Uh, and it kills people sometimes. But what we want to do is figure out if people are naturally immune. So if we could just kindly sort of spray this virus into your nose, then we're going to see if all thousand of you get it. Uh, we're going to figure out one thing. But if some of you guys don't get it, then that's great news. Okay? And we're going to change our government policy on that basis. Now, they, they have done some uh, testing like that with coronaviruses in the past, but they were the common cold-causing ones, not the, you know, give you pneumonia and kill you kind of ones. So North Korea, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like states that already don't give a hoot about human rights could maybe do something useful. But we're getting into uh, sort of Nazi medicine uh, ethical dilemmas about whether it would be appropriate to use that, uh, <laughs> that data or not. That lets us steer clear of it. OK, the point is, we're not going to figure that out uh, anytime soon. Uh, uh, and it's a very hard thing to do with other species, you know, you can't do it with lab rats easily because the whole point is that these viruses are very tailored to particular species. Uh, you know, there's already plenty of viruses that spread amongst us, but don't spread amongst dogs, do spread amongst dogs, but don't spread among mice and so on. So the cross-species thing is not particularly helpful. Okay, so it's going to be a hard thing to figure out. Maybe we'll never figure it out. And I think it's, so here's my problem with it um, that I've seen in some of Panda's work. In their article that they published, their 29-page brief, that got a lot of attention. It got no it got no good criticism, which is such a depressing sign. Like the critics were just like, oh, you guys are just caring about the economy. Uh, which is exactly they're showing that the economy is can poverty kills. This is what they they, they just weren't this, being taken seriously. This reminds and, me of an of an old an old uh, an old piece of wisdom, which is that you learn the lesson of building walls not from your friends but from your enemies. Mm. And so it is with many arguments in the public sphere. If you don't get good pushback you're going to become yeah. decadent and lazy. Yes. So I think that they've got the wrong reading of the Diamond Princess case. Uh, this is in a piece that came out yesterday. They say, here's, how, here's what happened in the Diamond Princess case. You've got the same kind of quick rise from nothing to peak to, 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 to uh, nothing again. That would suggest, if you control for demographics, because it's a lot of old people on board, uh, that it, you know, that comports with all of the other data and everyone missed the boat. That's their line. Um, but I'm not sure that they've gotten it entirely because one of the things that was going on on the Diamond Cruise Princess was very strict quarantine. Now, it turns out that the quarantine wasn't perfect. It turns out that there were common gathering points where people would have been uh, spreading the virus, and that's part of how it got around. But at the same time, there were a lot of old people that were pretty nervous and that were trying to stay in their beds and that were like surely washing their hands and all that kind of stuff. It's not like they didn't think they had coronavirus. They became very aware that they had coronavirus and the ship couldn't dock. So uh, what I'm trying to say is there's this voluntary response 
There's this voluntary change in behavior to masking yourself, to keeping away from other people, to washing your hands, to when the cutlery comes in, maybe scrubbing that down, all this kind of stuff that that they're not taking into account there, I think, in the way that they ought to be. Neither are the Oxford guys uh, who, who say, you know, look at the fact that lockdowns have been lifted in some states in America and in Germany and you haven't seen a huge return, you haven't seen a huge uptick in the in the reproductive rate of the virus. So that proves that it must be herd immunity that's controlling it. Herd immunity being a combination of natural immunity uh, or natural resistance plus the new people who've gotten infected and so have developed the antibodies. But they're missing the trick, which is that in Germany, uh, I've been to Germany. You know, here's how it works. There's like these underground clubs where people dress up in leather and lick each other and have like sort of heavy metal orgies uh, at night. And then in the, in the day, they come out in their suits since they seem all very proper and prim. And people and, like, wonder why I'm not a fan of Germany. And precise. Dude, but they haven't been having orgies. They haven't been going back to the theater or to the heavy metal concerts. In Italy, they haven't gone back to the opera. Uh, you know, the, the places that are supposedly post-lockdown are not post-call-up, what I'm saying, this sort of intangible hand, this sort of thing of coordinating an entire society to act in a radically different way by everyone trusting that, you know, my behavior can only save me, but it can a little bit help save others only if other people are also uh, trying to help save others. And if the thing we're worried about is ICU beds getting overridden, then that's really what matters. So we coordinate ourselves by having a, a, a chancellor or a president or whatever it is to say, you know, I still need you to be very, very careful and people acting accordingly. And that's what's been going on in Sweden. A lot of Taiwan has been defined by the intangible hand of esteem. A lot Hong of Kong Germany too. now. Hong Kong. I, I, I don't know if you saw the, the the videos from actually the Hong Kong Assembly. So this is something we're not really going to talk about today. But the Chinese have begun uh, uh, re restarted their crackdown on Hong Kong's independence and liberty um, by passing laws which restrict basically freedom of speech. Um, but the the pro democracy people in the Hong Kong legislature tried to vote against this, and they were dragged out by pro uh, Beijing security guards. Yeah, and in the whole fight. Every single person is wearing a mask. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. Like, dude, and this is it. This is so 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 I just want to give you a very very rough way of thinking about this. You've got 100 people in the community and 20 of them have definitely got the virus. One of them has died. Uh that's already a big exaggeration of the numbers, like actually it'd be point one of them, but one of them has died and now you release the lockdown and you don't see a sudden spread of the virus. Do you want to explain that by just this natural herd immunity or do you want to consider the possibility that another thing that's going on is the esteem, is the is the call up to be super careful is still in play? Uh, I think not enough work is being done on that, but I must say Hudson spoke to me about uh, his thinking on that and he does seem switched on to the question and they do seem like they're trying to figure out the answer. I had another interview today with someone who's on the government's official consortium of medical advisors to do with coronavirus. I'm not going to say his or her name uh, because I'm still clearing that. But I am going to tell you what was said because it was an open interview. And my big criticism of the government's data so far is that it has done exactly the same thing. 
and in this we've just followed the UK. You had Imperial College versus Oxford, and neither side really wanted to take into account the intangible hand, the the call up, the voluntary social behaviour differences. And so from the government side, it's like well, because it's difficult to model, right? Like, how do you? Uh, it's very difficult to say exactly what how people are following a disease, like. It just because you know they're not going to restaurants doesn't necessarily mean that they're washing their hands and not going to private parties. Yeah. So I think that's but one of the reasons why they depend on making assumptions. They they all they all depend on sort of saying, uh, uh, you know, if people become twenty percent better at washing their hands, this is what you're going to see. If they become eighty percent better at washing their hands, this is what you're going to see. And that would be the useful to my mind. The whole world would be different if that was the kind of information being put out there, because then you'd get a sense of why you should tell your neighbors to wash their hands, why you should tell your neighbors to socially distance, why you should shout at someone if they're walking their dog or not, right? If you had like a data science predict, do a model of like, here's how society looks if you have dog walking, here's how society looks if you don't have dog walking. Look, my suspicion is it's going to show no difference. And then if someone shouts at you for walking your dog, you can say, dude, you, 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 you're just enforcing like a... You're just being an authoritarian idiot. But if it's if if the data show very clearly that like shaking hands versus not shaking hands makes a big difference, if someone wants to shake your hands, you can say, no, man, that's like that's actually pretty shameful behavior here. Uh, because if everyone acts like you, this is what's going to happen to us. And if everyone acts like me, this is what's going to happen to us. So that's the kind of information that hasn't been put out there, should be put out there. But this doctor, well, this uh, epidemiologist told me that they have at least been considering it. And he said... That he thinks, you know, if there's a hundred people, uh, this is bringing this is this is bringing the rate of spread down by twenty percent, by twenty basis points. And then he thinks the lockdown brings it down by another forty basis points. Now I doubt that. Here's why. I mean, I think well, he's not entirely large, large parts of the country. People are not being able to follow the lockdown. Surely. Exactly. So the lockdown is. Uh, Okay, so here's the first thing to know. I've been looking at traffic congestion data from TomTom. I've been looking at planned trips from Trip Planner in, in, in first world major capital cities. And I've been looking at Google, Google Maps uh, uh, trip data. In every country, the pattern that you see again and again is, uh, is, is that travel drops before the lockdown in London in Madrid, in Milan. The only places where it doesn't drop before the lockdown, it's like it's dropping and then when it gets to the bottom, the lockdown happens to be at the same time. It's like, and this is what the Panda guys have done. They've looked, and I've done the same thing on Excel. I have looked up the Google, Oxford stringency index for every country and I've looked up uh, and I've generated tables for 12 countries of their rate of reproduction. And I've asked Excel, what is the correlation between on any given date, how stringent the lockdown is and what the rate of reproduction is either on that date or four days after that date or 10 days after that date, depending on sort of how long you think the delay would be for the measures to actually start showing up in the testing numbers or two weeks after that date. Zero correlation on any of them. There's no correlation across countries. There's no correlation between lockdown and reduced rate of reproduction. So there I'm with Panda. But where I'm not with Panda at the moment, but I think, but I think I'm not saying it's. It, I think that their thinking is evolving because they're genuinely committed to scientific interest, and I'm also genuinely committed to scientific interest. I don't think I've got any uh, 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 sort of special powers here. In fact, I'm much less sophisticated and educated than them than they are. But it does look to me like there is a connection between reduced mobility and reduced reproductive number. So I don't think that's all of the story, but right now to me, here's how it looks. I think 
that it's not implausible to suppose that if you've got 100 people, then 20 to 40 of them are naturally immune or hyper-resistant. And then when you have a call-up, it's like 30 people out of the 100 get put in the, in the pocket. And I'm not just thinking of old people who really are super careful not to go out and have their groceries delivered outside and have like, and I know lots of old people that are like that, that have been super careful. And I'm not just talking about Nick, Nick Lorimer who hasn't left the house in <laughs> Brazilian hours. Weeks, weeks, two months. I'm also talking about those people who have still been going out who would have been infected by now, but haven't been infected because of their own hygiene regimes, but also the hygiene regimes of everyone else. Like if everyone was acting like a, an ass and just not wearing a mask and not washing their hands and not being careful and going to the supermarkets, then every supermarket teller would be sick by now. But because most people are being careful, are washing their hands, are um, standing at a distance from each other, are being careful with their cards and covering their mouths with a mask, and those tellers are covering their mouths with a mask, like it's as if you could say there's a 30% reduction. And my 30% reduction, the government saying 20% reduction, you know, we'll figure out what the actual numbers are and they're going to be different in different places. But then the picture starts making sense to me. In a country like Germany, if you've got 20 people naturally resistant or 30 people naturally resistant, and then another 30 to 40 who are, as it were, being pulled out of circulation, uh, for a period in time. If you give enough time, it's going to penetrate. But for a period of time, pull out a circulation. Then you've only got 30 left. And of those 30, if 20 have it, then you've got what the data is showing us. 15 to 20 have it. You've got 15 to 20 have it out of 100. And that's not enough to get herd immunity unless that's 15 to 20 out of the, you know, if you look within that 30 who's still in circulation, it's like, 10 of those guys have got the antibodies, 20 of them have got the virus. That's why you see no uptick when we uh, lift the lockdown. But if you were to also lift the call up and start having people uh, congregate in large spaces and stop wearing masks and stop socially distancing, then that would be like introducing a new 30, 40 people into the equation. And then you will see the uptick. That is my working hypothesis. It's up for revision, but it's different to what the government's been making explicit. And it's different to what the Panda guys are making explicit because it's making explicit the thought that the lockdown and the call up are conceptually and practically different things that they've got different effects. And the, so, and so the call up seems to be the key one. And I'm not sure that, yeah. Here's what I think the key the, the, the key takeaway is. Um, on one hand, uh, lockdown, bad idea, doesn't really work. Uh, we should uh, we should do, especially in South Africa, where it's you know we really don't have a lot of gas in the tank to withstand a lockdown. We should end it, but yeah, we must still take it seriously because yeah. it is by our individual actions that we defeat this thing. It's by this, as you just talked about, this collective this collective uncoordinated action, the spontaneous order. Unsurprisingly, right? It's like the same way that we organize an economy uh, with a spontaneous order of the market, which has sort of a government, uh, a, a little bit of government protection on contracts and property and yeah. that sort of thing. But the majority of the decision making is left up to ordinary people. So it should be with us. Um, and that's why I think the most important thing the government has done is keep sending us SMSs, uh, although it's used some of them to be a little bit uh, annoyingly propagandistic. Um, I haven't gotten any of these, so tell me. Yeah, so here's, I'll just read you some of them. Uh, 
have fever, cough, or more, check symptoms on a health check, and then they give you a website uh, for the official department thing. Beware of fake news and careful of what information you share. Uh, during lockdown, so here, here we go. The coronavirus kills. In lockdown, only leave food to get uh, only leave home to get food, a social grant, or see doctor. Play it safe. Stay home and save SA. Now, look, this is not how I would write these things. Yeah. But I think as a sort of form of technology, as a kind of general idea, this is a really good good way of doing things. And governments are useful in the sense that, like everyone has access to their information. Uh, they are a central point. And so this the spreading of the good information of this grand directory you were talking about of you know what to do is really what governments should do. Now, of course, our government, they're not exactly vast on a lot of these things. And uh, we are, of course, still, you know, when, when, uh, when people say things like the World Health Organization is completely enthralled to the People's Republic of China, uh, yeah. the, the ANC goes, Ha, huh, I didn't know. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, we've definitely got some problems. Um, I but, definitely... I, but I do think, but it's, but look, it's, it, I want to, I want to emphasize this point. I think if you want to think about this virus properly at any, in any given debate, throw your mind back to March 15th when President Ramaphosa declared a national state of disaster. Now, the declaration of the state of disaster to me seemed plausible, seemed very reasonable for a couple of weeks. The constitutional challenge is about how long it's been and how there's been a refusal to allow parliamentary oversight of it. So even the declaration to me seems fine. But think about how you felt and think about how you can see it from out of space what the result was. A reduce in, co reduce in congestion and traffic in Johannesburg, a reduce in traffic flows around the country. You can see it from how, out of space. How quiet the, 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 the suburbs were when I went outside at night. It was like eerie. It was like being in the countryside. I started to hear birds that I only hear when I'm out of Joburg uh, during the lockdown. And it's interesting. And every single political leader in the country then got around in a table and said, we completely support Ramaphosa's call. What's he done? He's closed international borders. He's banned gatherings of more than 100. And he's closed the schools down while we think about this. And we're all done with that. And you all have to be super careful and like, uh, you know, don't panic buy, but you've got to get groceries like not every day. Try and get them really. Try and... Uh, stay at home. If you can work from home, please do that. That was the call up. And then 10 days later, we had the lockdown. And that was a different story. And it, we didn't even get that full days because the lockdown was announced five, like four days before the lockdown. And then you can see a direct uptick in traffic and in Google Maps, where they show you what kinds of things people are going to, you get a huge, you get 50% more traffic to grocery stores the day before the lockdown than on an average busy day because everyone is buying in anticipation of the lockdown. So it's like the lockdown's first effect was to boost traffic. And ever since, <laughs> it's had perverse effects. And it's been so perverse because government acolytes have insisted that it is responsible for everything in the decrease in the curve. So critics who say the lockdown on isn't working, they're like, well, what are you saying? This thing would definitely have spread more if we were all flipping still going to rock concerts. And they're right. And then the critics become like the what worries me is that the anarchic like impulse that you've seen in America with the guys saying, oh, wearing a mask isn't manly. Like I'm seeing yeah. more and more of that here on my Facebook wall, on on uh, vlogs that I watch and videos that I listen to and on the radio. It's like we want to end the lockdown. And here's a here's here's a, 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 a telling point. Not everyone took Ramaphosa seriously or all of the political leaders. It was not a partisan thing at all. The entire government, the entire parliament said, you guys have to be super careful, and we were. But not everyone. 
there were two parties that I saw on a video sent to me of coronavirus parties. One was in the Cape on the street and the other one was in KZN in a pool party. And there were literally hundreds of people in the swimming pool with beers in their hands chanting, Corona, Corona. And it was revolting to see. I mean, they just weren't taking this thing as seriously at all. It's like, oh, we're going to get a big holiday now. Fun, fun, fun. So those guys were not taking it seriously. And my worry is that this call to lift the lockdown is increasingly, the longer it lasts and the longer it's a call in the face of a government that is being, that's being cruel and unusual and unreasoning and irrational, the, the harder it is to reason with it and the more credence is given to the voices who basically just want to end the lockdown so we can go and have another party. Yeah. And we can't afford that either. And here's an interesting thing from the government's point of view. This doctor that I, this, this epidemiologist that I spoke to, he said his problem with Panda is that they're naive. They think, you know, that the, that the debates at the beginning was like, well, you know, Corona could kill 80,000 people. Should we wreck the economy to try and save those 80,000 lives? He's like, of course we wouldn't do that. We, you know, epidemiologists, actually serious people who look at death tables, they know 80,000 is a drop in the bucket compared to the usual deaths that we have. At most, like if we just literally did nothing, it'd be 25% of the communicable disease deaths that we have in this country. And we have more non-communicable disease deaths and we have non-natural cause deaths in a, at a huge rate. So it wouldn't, I mean, it would be a bad story and it would be outrageous, but it would definitely be survivable. And we would know that the damage well, we've done to the economy would cause through, more deaths. We've been through the horror of total kind of incompetence and misrule on HIV. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, even though that killed who knows how many people, maybe hundreds of thousands, uh, we're still kicking. Yeah. So they knew that the, the so he says, or she says, uh, or it says, they say, um, <laughs> That the rationale to end the lockdown was not to save lives, was not to save the ICU system, but was to save this country. Because the fear was, if we had an Italy-style situation where our, IC, where our hospitals are overwhelmed, where you get 100,000 deaths in a month, 80,000 deaths in two months, whatever it is, you are going to have, especially with our hospital system, and with our history of how we deal with failures of service delivery, the prediction was massive social unrest, which is going to create, you know, which is going to be directly violence, which is going to trigger violence from the army. Uh, if you have a domestically and a neighboring African countries that have got a similar problem, their, their fear was maybe, uh, let's put some caveats of maybe around this. This is just one person saying, maybe it's just his own fear, whatever it was. Uh, a, a fear worth considering is uh, that South Africa plunges itself effectively into a kind of anarchic civil war state <laughs> as a result of an Italian style, uh, you know, take Italy's footage, times it by 100, uh, beam it all across the country and add to it what the Italians didn't do and what you wouldn't expect them to do. You know, massive burning down of schools, of hospitals, of of the As houses of mayors. Good at. Yeah. So, dude, and that is, you know, I, I, I felt glad to be speaking to a government official because, you know, that's an interesting thing to think about. And I had thought about it, and we at the Institute had discussed it when we had our first uh, uh, massive series of coronavirus meetings, when the whole uh, 
France called yeah. the whole office to think about this seriously. And that was a serious consideration. And I've and it's been a serious thing on my radar uh, ever since I started doing scenario planning, because there's so many things about South Africa's, uh, uh, you know, the rule of law here is already extremely weak. And you've got a government that's been threatening the rule of law by proposing things like prescribed assets, expropriation without compensation. Uh, and we, and we also have a, a, a inbuilt culture that's decades old of mass civil disobedience and violent street process. Yeah. Uh, and we are professionals and, at violent street protests. And half a million people have been murdered here in the last 25 years. Yeah, so it's not like we it's not like we're strangers to violence. Uh, so uh, speaking so of, it's just of, a of thing to think about. It's yeah. just so 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 my general thesis is that both the Oxford side, as it were, domestically and internationally, and the Imperial College side, both domestically and internationally, have been missing out on the intangible hand, on the call up, on the voluntary side of this, that they both look like they're starting to, like they haven't missed it out completely. It's not like it wasn't in their models, but they weren't making it explicit. And insofar as they were modeling it, it does, maybe they weren't doing the best A++ job that they could do. But hopefully, if we can do our work right, and they can do their work right, that kind of information is going to get out there. And the reason that I want to em emphasize this, and that we can start being sympathetic to each other and thinking about the counterfactual, if the government had done nothing, would that have meant civil war in this country? It is an interesting thought. Yes. Um, the other thing, the, 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 he, has, he has, and I want to sort of lead by example, by showing my sympathy for these guys, as much as it frustrates me that now Ferguson completely excluded voluntary uh, actions uh, from non-sick households in his March 15th model that then changed the world and caused it to lock down after China, um, as much as it, it, it really infuriates me, I, I also understand it at this level, at this sort of human level. If you're including that in your model, voluntary behavior based on government information, based on expert information, then in a sense, what your model has to do is take its, its your model has to be a model of other factors and of itself. You're saying, Here's my model for how many people are going to die if no one reads my model. Here's my model of how many people are going to die if people, if half the people read my model and take me seriously. And here's my model of how many people are going to die if everyone reads my model and takes me seriously. And, you know, what my model shows is that it's the, the most life-saving thing you can do is to read my model and take it seriously. <laughs> now, I understand at a human level why epidemiologists have not been doing that for the last four months. It would look, at first blush, it like a very a rubbish. wanky thing to do. Yes. But on the flip side, it's something that you have to do because it is the most important thing. I, I think the most important tool in our kit is, the is to coordinate as far as possible voluntary behavior by giving expert advice. And they are the pinnacle of the, of the expert advisory pyramid yeah. so they have to model for themselves and you know what economists advertisers like business planners actual pmi data like there's no one else fails to not model for themselves yeah. and the brain if you think about the brain as a computer that does modeling you know one of the remarkable things about the brain is that it models for itself um so it's just a thing that you've got to do uh and and get over yourself. You know, this is the thing about the esteem economy is that when you draw attention to it, it seems like uh, everything is just about esteem. 
No, the point of drawing attention to it is, is to realize that there's so much more that's important. But if you're pretending as if you're not out there to, yeah, to also just, get likes. It's not just likes, pointing it out so that it's nice. It's also point, uh, so that it's cool and something to look at. It's so that we can actually affect the world in some way. Yeah. And, they, and, they, if, and until those epidemiologists start making it explicit that they also are modeling for their own models penetration. Like I want to see panda models that are saying, you know, here's what happens if everyone believes like panda, that it's much more important to get back to work and to start consuming. By the way, so the panda guys have taken this into account and they and they say they're working on a piece that says, you know, how much economic damage was done by the lockdown versus how much economic damage was done by the the panic, they call it, the, the esteem economy yeah. redistribution to a new normal. Which is, which is actually an incredibly important piece of data uh, for analyzing just how much of a disaster the lockdown will end up being. So, so strength to their arm, and I really look forward to seeing what their results are. And and they've been looking at Sweden very closely, and looking at their their PMIs. And so I'm I'm looking forward to staying in communication with them about that. And them doing the really good work. And I'm, I've got to say, on both sides, the people that I spoke to were willing to hear tough questions, were willing to hear critical uh, points of view, and and seemed serious about this. And that's not what I've been seeing from uh, top leadership. Uh, but I'm glad that some of the scientists who are willing to speak out are are thinking at that level, are taking this seriously. And I, and I think that's hugely well, it suggests, important. It suggests that our political class and our media class are much less competent than our scientific class. Who would have, who would have guessed? <laughs> um, uh, so we've got about 15 minutes. Let's quickly bash out something about what we used to talk a lot about before the Great Plague descended upon us, uh, which is, of course, the American election. Um, so I've got some ideas about this. Um, what's interesting is that Donald Trump saw at first a big spike in his approval ratings. Well, you know, relative for him, uh, his approval ratings are pretty much flat. Most of the time, they're kind of always around somewhere between 40 to 45%, usually closer to 44%. And they just sit there and no matter what he does, whether he has a bad week or a good week, they're pretty much yes. in the same place. Uh, America is clearly, uh, well, let's say immobile. Let's say yes. its brain, its mind has become immobile. Yes. Uh, now, what's interesting is, so so his, his approval ratings did go up, uh, but so did everyone else in the world, every single other leader, uh, Boris Johnson, Cyril Ramaphosa, everyone we have some kind of data for, uh, their approval rating went up as the crisis hit. What's interesting about Trump is how his really didn't go up that much. Yeah. Um, and it now seems to have gone down. And there's lots of polling coming out. Um, there's national polling, which shows that uh, Biden is ahead by anything between five to ten points uh, nationally. But, of course, they don't vote nationally. They vote by state. Uh, I think Trump is currently behind in every single swing state except for North Carolina, which would mean... Uh, that he would be completely and utterly toast uh, mm. if, if there was an election. Now, who knows? Uh, as we know from last time, you know, it, it only takes one or two states to have some bad polling, as happened in, uh, what was it, Michigan last time, which had atrocious polling in 2016. It got Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders completely... So it got Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump completely wrong. Um, so... So I think things are looking not so good for him. And, you know, it's always difficult to say why. But one of the interesting things I learned recently uh, from some of this data 
is that Trump has very he has he's got higher job approval ratings than people who are going to vote for him or personal approval ratings. So there's a chunk of Americans, maybe 10 percentish, who think that he's done a good job, but say that they're not going to vote for him or that they think that he's a jackass. And this seems to be his problem is on one hand, you could say, you know, uh, uh, and this is this is stolen directly from that analysis. It's not an original thought stolen directly from that analysis. I heard um, on one hand, you can say, yeah, no, uh, those people are easy to get back because they really think he's doing a good job. And if you just a little bit sweet to them, they'll cut back. The alternative view is to say that uh, despite the fact that they think he's, he's done a good job, they absolutely loathe him. And so he's never going to get them back because what he does is not affected by what what they who they vote for is not affected by his actions. Um, what's more interesting to me in a lot of this stuff is how well Biden's doing. So Biden also has incredibly flat polling, like he doesn't have bad weeks, he doesn't have good weeks. It's just a straight line. Pretty Which, much, if you watch his stuff. footage, him and Trump, like they have really different weeks in their in their behavior. Yeah. Uh, you know, Biden and says scandals you know, coming out of them, and 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 then vindications of them. Like it is, it's it's really weird. It's like it's like a it's like a very exciting basketball game. You know, it's like every week there's a new revelation that helps one side, then the other side. It's like someone always in the in the uh, yeah, someone always seems to be taking the lead, excepting in the minds of the masses, where it's just like no, we we like this guy, we like. This guy. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so, so my my greater question though is, I can understand why people like Trump. Uh, he's, you know, he's kind of got this bombast. He allegedly fights. Um, reasonable minds can differ on to whether he 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 does. Uh, but I think I think he uh, he, he you know he's a he's a he's not my cup of tea, but I can I can see where people are coming from when they like him. Here's my question to you, uh, Gabriel, which is, do people like Biden because they think he's a sweet old nice grandpa who's just going to make everything pleasant and charming again? Or do you think they like him just because he's not Trump? So my my view is that it's changed. Um, I think Biden had huge approval ratings, bipartisan, even sort of bipartisan for a while, because he was in so many ways in the center of American values. So he wasn't super lefty. Uh, he wasn't particularly woke. He often said things that would kind of freak out college students. So it's easy for Republicans to, to like him. But he's, at the he's same also time... Enough, he's also, he, if you're a Republican, you think uh, he's going to lose. Um, and he has got no chance of getting the Democratic nomination. It's very, it's a very nice counterpoint to say, uh, you know, those. I'd really think about voting for those Democrats if they put up Joe Biden. But too bad they're going to put up Kamala Harris with Bernie Sanders. Yeah, there's a cynical thing to 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 airing uh, a like for him. But also, I think that he's 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 very understandable. Like, there's nothing enigmatic about Joe Biden, <laughs> excepting for the tragedy around his life and the story of yeah. him wanting to run against Hillary and thinking that, you know, she maybe doesn't have the chops to beat Trump and then his son getting brain cancer 
and him then deciding not to run because he wants to sort of protect his family from the kinds of stresses and scrutinies that always come from a presidential campaign. That's a tragic story. And that, that kind of story buys a lot of sympathy and it's, re- and it's real. It, I mean, it buys it from me too. It's yeah, real in that. Yeah. For me. And same for uh, the car accident that wiped out his family uh, decades before. So he's like, he's got this story of being they, born they, poor. There and then dark side to that. up by his bootstraps and then taking life's knocks and continuing to get back up by falling into the, you know, he's like a crowd surfer. It's like, no matter how hard you knock him down, you'll always surf the crowd. That's, that's his Jesus. That's his like, that's his spiritual untouchable zone is, is feeling that he's loved by the people enough that they will find a thing for him to do. And so even though he's going insane, like even though he's going senile, <laughs> like it's just the third, it's just the third act in the great tragedy of his life that he's he no longer is like mentally competent enough to do a lot of the things that you'd expect my seven-year-old nephew to be able to do, but he, but he's but he's still like willing to throw himself at the crowd and not think that they're going to be like what you're crazy and let him fall on his face and and Americans love that, uh, you know there's a there's Chicago the musical. There's the song about being a star, and it's like, I love the crowd, and the crowd loves me, and I love them for loving me, and they love me for loving them for loving me, and <laughs> it's a love fest. And that seems crazy, but if you watch any pop star, any rock star, when they say, we, you know, we love our fans, the fans, that's what gets the biggest cheer, right? Wow. People love to be loved. And Biden has shown a deep love for the American people. And, and his, his mental infirmity just reinforces that. Every time he confuses his wife for his sister, but is still running for the presidential campaign. That's like be a very awkward, awkward mistake to make. <laughs> but that is hard evidence that this guy trusts that the American people love him so much that it doesn't matter. And that's the evidence that a lot of people are really looking for in sympathy. And I think Trump's much the same. It's like, Every time he pulls his foot out of his mouth for long enough to put it back up his asshole, like it, and is still running to be president. That's what proves he that he loves us because he, he he his his very frailties become his great strengths. That's the thing that people kept saying about Trump for the last four years. He's the Teflon man. The harder you hit him, nothing sticks. He's no. a tennis ball. He just keeps bouncing back. Why? It's precisely his shamelessness. It's precisely his signals. That the thing that matters most to him is that people love him. That make people love him. It's 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 uh un, it's you know it's it's psychological I suppose this analysis which maybe makes it esoteric and uh, and unappealing to people who are more data driven. But if you look at the data stuff, it's like Trump's approval ratings. Uh, it's it's you know it, it's hard to find the kind of pinch points that are going to really matter because the economy is the, the economy. Well, well, here's, here's one of the important ways that he's lost support. He's lost it amongst old people. Yeah. Because normally his rock solid base. And there, I think a big part of the story is about, um, weirdly enough is about a democratically led administration, sending old people out of hospital back into old age homes and where they then die. Andrew Cuomo but, in New York. But I've literally seen that, carried on cnn as a as a as a, as a donald trump screw up and yes. you can just and you can just see, dude old people like i don't know I, I i can imagine an old person being like well you know this guy's so into the economy and he's so into dynamism and he's 80 but he kind of seems to shag like a 
40-year-old stallion. Uh, like, <laughs> he's not one of us. And now the, the poo-poo's hitting the fan, and he's, like, talking about getting the economy back going instead of sort of sending out daily messages to say, you know, our, our greatest generation is dying, and isn't it a tragedy? And, and so I think that, yeah, I mean, I do think that that's, and the Republicans depend on those votes very heavily. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in a lot of America's elections, it's essentially the olds versus the youngs, particularly under Trump, who's, uh, you know, very unpopular, even with young Republicans, yeah. um, where, where, where he, he struggles. Uh, you know, I think there's a general thing, and we're going to see over the next couple of weeks whether I'm right about this. But I think that in a crisis like this, the first thing everyone does is they uh, retreat into the status quo. They say, you know what, whatever we've got now, uh, it's good. We support our president, we support our mm. prime minister, we support our leader. And I think this is going to happen pretty much everywhere in the world. And then also what's going to happen is when people are recovering, regardless of whether their government did a good or a bad job, a lot of people are going to say, man, everything is terrible right now. You know what? It was the damn government for not doing whatever. You know, people yeah. people, people yeah. tend to vote more on expectations. We're not doing, more, not doing less. We're yeah. not doing the same uh, they thing were, in a different They were so way. good during the pandemic, and now suddenly they've gotten bad. You know, there'll be some variants of, of that argument. Uh, and I think I think what's really going to happen now is there's going to be a big backlash against every single government that was in power during COVID. Uh, some might be able to weather it, particularly if they did very well during the pandemic. But a bunch are going to have a difficult time. Trump is going to have to go into an election where an enormous number of people are without jobs. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, he can say it's not his fault. And people may agree with him, but they'll say, yeah, but you haven't helped me enough since. Or, uh, you know, my grandma died from COVID and all you could do was talk about liberate Kentucky or how the FBI mistreated you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah. uh, no. I, I think I think I think you're right. I, I think the punishment is is going to be. At least as as least as potent as the reward, the incumbency reward that you first saw is going to be uh, less than the punishment is for a while, and then it's a question of timing. Does that because then that flow will you know that wave will crest and and retreat, uh, maybe in five years. You know maybe in five years people finally look back on this time and they say, well you know the American economy couldn't have possibly gone into this better prepared. Uh, uh, in terms of joblessness numbers, because that's really the the best buffer you can have is having as many people as having a job as possible, and and a lot of that was Obama, a lot of that was uh, the Trump administration, and you know maybe we were too hard on the guy at the time because he's got golden taps in his bathroom, and a sort of a Dorito. Because he talks uh, about uh, uh, hair models a lot and sleeping with them. <laughs> and Gary Payer, by the way, I just saw Gary Payer was highlighted as one of Trump's main advisors. By a scathing New York Times piece, uh, so really? there's there's a little South African exceptionalism for you. That's fantastic. <laughs> so and I and I suppose that is one of the things to watch out for. You know, Gary Player's great line was the more I, you know, he he did really well in a golf in a in a U.S. Open, and they're like, you know that 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 hole in one that you sunk or whatever it was. That's just, that was just really lucky, and he said, yeah, you're right. Funny thing is, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And and that seems to be like the Donald Trump formula in a way, is that it almost never makes sense. It's hard to look at anything that he's done and kind of 
sort of see how it makes sense that he did it until it, he does you sort he of does. take into account like some x factor and 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 he sort of seems to have practiced at being lucky yeah yeah you do you do get the sense that he is the luckiest human being who's ever lived in the history of time uh, yeah, i mean he, he doesn't deserve this he definitely doesn't deserve <laughs> Either the love or the hate. Like oh. people's opinions of, of him are people are so invested in that guy well, to a well, degree, and it's unusual because American politics is so important. Often, I feel like I wish people cared more about American politics because it matters so much. But it's like even the presidency isn't as important as the passion with which people respond to Donald Trump. Exactly. Like, I mean, either Hitler but, but, or he but, is Jesus reincarnated. I mean, that is just <laughs> that is just not the planet that I. Thought that I was gonna. Like, but, but if you were if you were a kind of narcissistic guy who always wanted to be the center of attention, yeah. What better future could you wish for than one where literally everyone in the world has an opinion about you, and it's not even just a little opinion; it's a really, yes. really strong, passionate, central to their identity opinion. Yeah. No, <laughs> He's living was, the dream. Dude, that book is definitely living the narcissist's dream. I mean, there's no way he could die tomorrow, complete. Yes. No, maybe, you know, they say that some presidents, when they leave the presidency, it basically kills them. Yeah. Uh, the obvious exception is Jimmy Carter, who, despite <laughs> having like a quadrillion cancers and keep on, you know, only being there for one term, uh, still carries on <laughs> with his charity work. <laughs> He's great. Best post president. Uh, well, well, you know, maybe. Hope he never dies. I hope he never dies too, but I'm not sure if he's the best post president, as we've discussed before. Yeah. I rather like I rather like W's paintings. <laughs> yeah, no, I gotta say, second best post president, maybe best post president. <laughs> Dude, if, if 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 Trump goes down to Texas and paints with I mean, let's say Trump gets voted out, whatever. Uh and then he goes down to Texas and just paints for a while with George W. Bush. America think, would be killed. I think it would be killed. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> we, can, oh. We, can, we can only hope for such a beautiful future. No, but I'm dude. I'm pretty bleak because I think so. I don't know, but maybe. There, so, what are the reasons? Are there reasons for hope in America? I suppose not in a way because if see my theory about American elections, uh, and it's true of, it's not true of South African elections, but it's true of many. It's true of elections in countries where you've got an established. Uh, kind of contest uh, where it's where it's all gone a bit old and a bit stale. The thing that really matters the most, lots of things matter, but the thing that matters the most, I think, is the tenor of the competition. Yes. In your debate with, with Nick Hudson, dude, he said such a perfect thing. Right at the end of the interview, he said, the biggest evil is to eradicate the mechanism for correcting error. Yes. That God, was a very dude. good line. God. Ah, that's like and why that's completely correct. That's why I'm a journalist to hang out and hear experts like that say perfectly, like laconic, correct things like that. Although the we did say a, we did say a version of that on two crickets. I would I would like to point out. So you know we're trendsetters. Is what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're trendsetters. <laughs> so but so but so the thing is, you want you want presidential elections to be error connection things, and and if. I don't know that this election, and that is about the process. That's not about the outcome. It's about yeah, what well, kinds of arguments sway people. What are the perceived arguments? What are the arguments that are perceived to have swayed people? 
I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a hint which way it's going. Uh, Donald Trump's sons have been uh, well. You know, we know Joe Biden's called Donald Trump a racist, and today he said, uh, "If you're if you are an African American and you don't know why you should vote for me, then you're not black." That was Joe Biden's line today. <laughs> um, and uh, Donald Trump's sons, I can't remember whether it's Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr., but one of them is basically saying that Joe Biden's a pedophile. So, America's doomed. <laughs> Dude, the IQ, it's like, it's like watching the water drain from the bath. It's the <laughs> IQ in America has just been falling so hard. <laughs> And it's it's chosen stupidity. It's not inbuilt. It's it's no. people, people people had the choice to be to be smart or stupid, and they said, you know what, being stupid is so much more fun. It is WWE. And the thing is, I always want to underline this, dude. I love being stupid. I love WWE as a high school boy in boarding house. We used to wrestle. It's so with good. I love watching rugby matches because, and it's very stupid when I watch a rugby match. By seventy nine minutes, I start out very clever. By seventy nine minutes, I'm always drunk and shouting at the ref. Even if our guy has just decapitated. I saw Butch James decapitate a small French person. And and the ref gave him a red card. And I was like, that was at minimum, that was at most a penalty. Like, he had no body involved in that tackle. He just punched his face. And I was like, no, but guys, be serious. That's just a penalty. Because my IQ falls through my feet when I'm watching rugby. I love it. I love stupid. I get it. I get the appeal. But to apply stupid to politics in the way that we've been doing is just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's so depressing, man. Because there is so much violence. Politics is a coordination of violence, and the powers of violence in America, their powers—what that coordination of violence means to stock exchanges, bond markets, uh, 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 trade globally, what it means to like hard violence stability in terms of you know. Uh, 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 what real politic relations with the Middle East, with North Korea, with Russia, with China. I mean, it is so important that that error correction mechanism of high IQ kind of non-team-based thinking is present at the center of that coordination of violence. And like, do the roll call. Passion, presence. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, team loyalty present, uh, like big fireworks present, uh, IQ absentee, you know, yeah. hasn't been seen in years. <laughs> we don't even know if that kid still comes to this school. Like, we thought he'd transferred to another country. No, that sounds about right. Anyway, I think we should call it here. Uh, we've been going on for a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you if you if you uh, if you love what we do, if you like two crickets, if you or you know even if you don't, um, you can uh, give money hey, to. Sorry. Yeah, no. Sp spread this to your friends and to your enemies. Yes. I really I really do think that like part of how we try to converse is in a way that uh, is 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 potentially ecumenical, potentially interesting to people who don't share our. Our views. So well, yeah, send it to your enemies, man. Yeah, send it to your enemies. Um, and, and give money to the Institute of Race Relations, just because we know that there are people out there who undoubtedly, undoubtedly, get a fair amount of satisfaction from the fact that there are people like us to hate. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, you can you can do that uh, by becoming a friend of the IRR. Uh, just go to the website, uh, irr.org.za, uh, click the Join Us button, fill in your details, uh, and we will set you up. Um, I think that that's about all for today. Yeah, so thank you very much, everyone. We'll catch you on the next one. Uh, stay safe, stay fresh. Uh, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully you're all staying in prosperity. Although I know that's a bit difficult these days. Um, and we'll see you around. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>